Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic International Studies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. You're listening to Russian Roulette. I'm Max Bergman, here with my co-host, Maria Snegovaya. And today, we are joined by two of the leading economists studying Russia today, Alina Rybakova and Sergei Alexashenko. Alina has been a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics since April 2023. She is also a non-resident fellow at Bruegel and a director of the International Affairs Program and Vice President for Foreign Policy at the Kiev School of Economics. She has also been a senior adjunct fellow at the Center for New American Security and a research fellow at the London School of Economics. Alina, thanks so much for being here today. Additionally, we are joined again today by Dr. Sergei Alexashenko. Sergei is currently a board member at the Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom in the Free Russia Foundation. After receiving his PhD, Sergei spent the 1990s working in public service as a senior expert on the Commission on Economic Reform in the Government of the USSR, then Deputy Minister of Finance of Russia, in charge of budgetary planning and tax policy, and afterwards, first Deputy Governor of the Central Bank of Russia. <laughs> He's telling me to get on with it, and I think we will, but let, let me just also say later he worked in private business, including as CEO of Merrill Lynch Russia from 2006 to 2000. 2008. In 2014, he relocated to Washington, D.C., where he was a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings until 2019. So thank you both. We couldn't have two better people to have with us to sort of explain everything that's going on with the Russian economy. Um, let me uh, maybe start with Alina to sort of just get a broad overview. What is the current state of the Russian economy right now uh, in, in July of 2023? How do, what does the Russian economic outlook look for this year? Thank you so much for having me in such a distinguished company. But I think it's first important, as you say, to distinguish between what we're expecting for this year and for the medium term. I think for, for this year, Russian economy is stabilizing. You've seen the budget revenues, non-oil and gas revenues are stabilizing, short-term indicators also showing some stabilization. And, and before long, I'm not saying that Russian economy will go back to the pre-crisis level, but it is definitely showing improvement. And we can discuss, of course, during this exchange why that is happening. Of course, medium term, I'm a simple person. I'm an economist, right? So I think about simple Cap Douglas, you know, function where there is, you know, labor, investment and productivity. So if I could simply put a negative potential growth for Russia, I probably would do that. Because if you think about productivity, of course, that is dead partially because, you know, mostly because of the efforts of Putin and his administration, and of course, aided uh, by isolation and sanctions and export controls. If you think about investment, again, most of the resources are going into the military and that kind of investment in the uniforms and, uh, and military production that is not medium term uh, sort of productive. And then finally, labor, we have at least 300,000 people that were drafted and many are dying right now in Ukraine. And then in addition, you have estimates range between 500,000 and more than a million people who that have left Russia. We, no matter what the estimate of this, um, you know, the final estimate on migration, uh, we know that uh, labor market is very tight in Russia and the unemployment is historically low just because there are no people. So it's very hard to paint a rosy picture for the medium term, but in the short run, we see the economy stabilizing and recovering from last year. 
Sergey, I'm curious for for your views as well. Uh, anything you disagree with with what Alina outlined, and, and what is your take on, on the current state of the Russian economy? Uh, Max, thank you for having me. You see, as economists usually say, it's a glass half full or half empty. Uh, Alina tried to demonstrate that glass is half full. I may say, okay, yes, I have not, nothing to argue, but it's to my mind, it's half empty. Of course, uh, statistically, if we take uh, the macroeconomic statistic, the Russian economy is stabilized. Moreover, in, according to official data in the first quarter, there was some insignificant but still economic growth, and it will be even bigger in the second quarter. But if we look inside of the economy, if we look on the layers, we will see that all growth is originated from the military production. So it's not butter, it's guns. Is it productive for the short run, for the economy? Definitely not. Is it productive for the medium run? Not. Is it productive for the long run? Not. So, yes, statistically, on the surface, we see the stabilization, uh, we see growing salaries, we see growing employment, we see growing transportation, metal production, everything is growing. Everything what could be related to the military is growing. But... Below the surface, if we try to identify Russian official statistics sectors that are not related to military, if we look on the sectors that were hurt by uh, sanctions, we see, okay, they're on the bottom and nothing is going to be better. Not, not in this year, not next year. So it's half full or half empty. You, you to decide. Actually, if I may follow up, main thanks, Sergey and Elena, for uh, great comments. We keep saying that. I, this sort of sounds like I've already heard that before, that sanctions will eventually end up working, right? And I'm actually a little bit surprised, Alina, that you used last year as a comparison, saying that uh, Russia, Russian economy is recovering as compared to last year, given that last year was actually not too bad, given the apocalyptic forecasts, right, that we've had uh, from, you know, the White House, among others. So, in, as a matter of fact, things were not too bad last year, and the they seem to be, based on what you're saying, even better this year, then we keep saying, yes, eventually sanctions will deliver and there will be some slowdown or maybe some decline of uh, economy in Russia. But that never seems to be coming true. Like, could you comment on that? Why should we become uh, confident about the future effects of sanctions if they fail to deliver immediately and to base uh, also... This part of this argument on Serge's arguments uh, that he's made in his publications, Russia's economy is also adapting to sanctions. So going forward, what is there to guarantee that sanctions will end up working? I think you're, you're sort of asking the right question. I think there is nothing to guarantee that the sanctions will end up working. It is absolutely up to us. So I give an example of uh, maybe I would like to have a sales tax of 21% across the whole of the United States. And I'll pass the regulation that says so. I tomorrow desire this tax of 21%. Everybody has to pay. But if I don't do any administrative measures in order to be able to implement it and force it and uh, sort of make sure that the private sector complies, maybe in the US some people will pay, some will not. If you do it in a different country, nobody will pay, right? So we have an issue where we have passed a lot of measures. We passed the world price cap. We have the embargo. We have passed export controls. But the problem is that we are lacking the necessary institutional infrastructure to be able to implement and enforce it effectively. And I think that's where the problem is. On the other side, Russia and potentially China are extremely multi-billion dollar incentivized to break these export controls and sanctions and circumvent them. They are investing everything they've got to circumvent it. If we're not investing everything that we got to implement and enforce, 
Then, indeed, over time, Russia will keep on adapting. I agree with Alexei, the glass maybe is half full, half empty. There is definitely an impact, but nothing of the dramatic uh, expectations that we all had in the perfect world when we pass the policy and it gets perfectly implemented. Sergey, do you have anything to add to that? Thank you very much, Elena. Maria, okay, let's have a debate. Let's have a discussion. Because if we share all views, I will be a little bit provocative, but I would disagree with Elena. Uh, economy, it's not about formulas. Economy is not about equation. Economy is about human behavior. It's interaction between humans, between companies, and it's billions of decision-making procedures. If you impose 21% sales tax all over the United States, and even if you impose uh, regulation, legislation, everything else, economy will adjust. Initially, it will be significant hurt on private consumption. And living standards of the people will decline significantly. But one year later, people will adjust. Salaries will adjust. Profits will adjust. Prices will adjust. Two years later, everyone will forget. No, not to forget. Of course, 21% is too much, too much. But okay, we can survive. We can survive. If we talk about sanctions, we have to understand that sanctions is not a, a single instrument. We may take personal sanctions, financial sanctions, sanctions on Russian export and bans on Russian imports. And they work differently, each of them. For example, personal sanctions, to my mind, is the most useless. Because thousands of sanctions imposed on people who have no financial assets, not only abroad, but even inside Russia, okay, it's a great achievement. We have 145 million Russian people. Please impose sanctions on 100 million of them who has no financial assets. It will be in numbers the world record. But it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So next one is financial sanctions. Financial sanctions do hurt, and they hurt the Russian economy just immediately. In two weeks after, imposing, after invasion, inflation jumped to 10% per month, and ruble devalued by 70%. But financial sanctions are the easiest to adjust, because it's about money. It's about monetary flows. Yes, price cap is a great instrument, but Looking inside the Russian economy, it was adjusted by devaluation of the ruble. Yes, we may report, yes, price cap is working, Russian oil is sold below $60 per barrel. But if you look on the revenues of the Ministry of Finance, they're happy. They're happy. The, their revenues in the middle of this year, in May and June, they're well within projections. So they don't worry, because ruble devalued from being 60 rubles per dollar in December up to 90 rubles per dollar in uh, July. So, do financial sanctions work? Yes, but not really. Uh, plywood. Plywood ban on export of Russian plywood is the most serious and the most evident sanction that works and nothing could be changed. Because plywood is, was going to Europe. Europe said, okay, no ply, Russian plywood anymore. And they cannot sell it. Okay, it was minus 40% last May. It might additional minus 7% this year. So, this sector is in disaster. Yeah? But if we say, okay, about technological sanctions, ban on export of anything to Russia, Russian import of technological goods, okay, it will take years. It will take years. Russian companies, they do not uh, accept the Japanese model just in time. They accept Russian model just in case. And they have huge, huge stocks of components. After 2014 sanctions, they accumulated stocks for 18 months, for 24 months. 
And even today, as Aline rightly mentioned, there are different ways of circumventing sanctions using ch different channels via Turkey, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Georgia, and many other countries. So, do they work? Yes, but we will see their results five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. So, I would not say that sanctions can change Russian economy significantly. The economy will adjust. There will be, even if, if we find a way to deduct the effect of military production, and we'll agree, okay, the economic decline was not 2% last year, but it was, I don't know, 4.5%, and will be additional 1.5% this year. Nevertheless, there will be a bottom. And from that bottom, Russian economy will start to recover. It will demonstrate growth. The growth will be slow. It will not be 3% as global economy. It may be 2% or 1.5%. Technologically, it will, Russian economy will be lagging. Uh, there will no be German cars, French cars, American cars, Japanese cars. Well, there will be Chinese cars. So, life, life is going on. Eco uh, sanctions cannot destroy the economy. This makes one a little bit nostalgic of the good old days of planned economy, when allegedly there was fewer ways for uh, the Russian economy to adjust. Elena, did you want to comment uh, on what Sergey said? I want to say that I agree that there are different measures. So we have economic statecraft. We have various tools in that toolbox. And I worry that sometimes we use those toolboxes because we have it. You know, so we know how to do financial sanctions. We're going to smack that. You know, we sort of come up with this creative tool of oil price cap because you want, we want to have a cake and eat it too. Let's try that. We now want to lead with export controls. Maybe they work, maybe they don't. Let's try it. I, I feel that we don't have the unified system, the way that we think about how these tools of economic statecraft can fit into the bigger picture. And we sort of seem to think that it's like a magic pill, you know, you're going to give it and then Russian economy will disintegrate. It's like a silver bullet and, and then everything will be happy ever after. But no, we, we have to somehow coordinate that with the aid we're giving it to Ukraine, with the security guarantees we're giving to Ukraine, with potential insurance that for a construction, it somehow has to fit more into the national security and foreign policy objectives. And not to think that measures like sanctions or whatever, measures of economic statecraft by itself, by themselves will deliver the end of the war. I think that is extremely unrealistic. I totally agree. But I guess maybe to, to, to nail down or, or to sort of unpack the kind of sanctions debate a little bit. I mean, part of me sees that the role of sanctions is to really increase costs on, on the Russian economy, to be disruptive as possible, to make it difficult for the Russians to produce new missiles. Maybe they can find microchips, but maybe they're crappier microchips that they're having to put in missiles. Maybe they have to draw down their stockpile of chips that they've stored you know, prior to the war. And that the kind of silver bullet expectation of sanctions uh, has sort of, I think, I think now has been really discredited. But I guess to maybe sort of, high, you know, I think, Alina, you're totally right that the bureaucratic energy required to implement sanctions is really something that has to be sustained, not just for the first year, but year two, year three. And it seems when we look at the application of kind of broad cross-cutting sanctions to other economies, they've been effective not at inducing political dis change in decision-making, but at strangling the economy. And that kind of seems what the objective is here. Now, I guess, Sergey, back to you. It seems like what you're saying is that you're seeing the Russian economy really being able to adapt 
But it does strike me that if you can't sell plywood, that was probably a major, you know, major export industry. There's people's jobs that are dependent on it. Then what is does the Russian state have to, to step in to support those individuals? I mean, what's the sort of level of disruption that sanctions are causing? And is that putting more strain on, on the Russian budget, on the Russian state to sort of come in if a, the car sector, for instance, is not able to produce cars anymore and, and Russians are all buying Chinese? Is that disruption uh, causing having a real implication on Russian state budgets and, 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 on, and on the Russian economy? Max, it's a great question, and as usual, uh, the devil is in details. Uh, plywood is not a very sophisticated technological product, and it is not a very long chain of uh, partners. You just cut the wood, go to the processing, and okay, two iterations later you have plywood. It is located in several cities. The number of jobs in these uh, companies maybe dozens of thousands, maybe, I don't know, three, four, not more, maybe maybe even less. And they're concentrated in, uh, okay, in some cities. It's not widespread all over the country. Russia has 70 million, 70-something million employees. So statistically, it's, it's not even peanuts. It's, I don't know, it's invisible. It's invisible. Yes, for local cities, for those cities, it's a problem. Uh, because it's profit tax that is going to regional budgets, it's personal income tax that goes to local budget, but even on the level of the Minister of Finance, uh, it's not it's not visible. Will will Russian government will Russian federal budget finance some expenditures? Yes, yes, but Russian Russian budget is uh, in expenditures about thirty trillion rubles uh, for twenty twenty three, and Russian Minister of Finance has slightly less than seven trillion or say, let's say, 20, 23% or in its fiscal reserves. So another, I don't know, dozen billion rubles, it costs nothing to Ministry of Finance. On car, car industry, it's even more interesting because virtually all uh, companies, except of Russian uh, after us, they were assembling cars. And they imported disassembled cars. Volkswagen produced cars, assembled it in Germany, then disassembled, sent to Russia, to Kaluga. In Kaluga, they assembled it once again, under the supervision of Germans, and sold it in the Russian market. Do they need jobs? Yes, hundreds. It's, it's, after was uh, before the reconstruction, before 2008, they had 110,000 workers. It was the company that produced everything for itself. After restructuring, after it was sold to Renault Nissan, they cut their staff up to 40-something thousand. Nowadays, it's even 35. Yeah, so, and all other companies, Ford, Toyota, Volkswagen, Mitsubishi, everyone, they have hundreds. So, yes, it is a problem for them. Yes, of course, in some regions like in Kaluga and in Leningrad region, it's where the uh, car production, Kaliningrad, where car production was concentrated. Yes, it's a heavy blow for the regional budget, for the regional economy. But in the uh, economy, in Russian economy as, as itself, no. Moreover, today, Russian, uh, Russian uh, business, it's once again, it's economy, it's about business, it's about human decisions. And that provides uh, all problems, all sanctions, all uh, problems with logistics and everything, that creates opportunities for private businessmen. 
They try to find ways to import components for car, car repairment, okay? There is no new components for uh, cars produced five years ago, okay? We have to find a way to purchase them in Turkey, to transport them to Russia. So people will move to those sectors. Okay, today we have, today as, as Russian economy, we have to purchase Chinese cars. But that means that dealership, they will sell Chinese cars. Technicians will repair Chinese cars because they are less reliable, they need more attention, more scarce. Okay, yes, it's, it's, it's about economy. It's about economy. Do those sanctions hurt Russian economy? Yes. Statistically, I don't know, Elena maybe knows, maybe able to calculate those dozens of, uh, one, hundred, I don't know, decimals, points in the Russian GDP, but it's, it's not on the surface. Russian economy is about natural resources production. Oil, metals, wood, fertilizers. You see all those sectors there well enough. I would say the most efficient sanction that banned Russian uh, export was a ban on uh, refined products to the European Union. That was really a significant effect. And immediately after it was came into force on February 5th, uh, Russia cut uh, oil production by uh, 500,000 barrels per day and later on another 500,000 barrels. So all in all, Russia cut its oil production by 10%. So that is really a sanction that hurted significantly Russian economy. Alina, I'm curious for your reaction to that. And when we look at the, the Russian sort of budget, Part of, I think, there was a lot of reporting early in the year that with the oil price cap, that there was reduced money coming into the Russian budget, that they were going to run higher deficits and needing to sort of support a wartime economy. The state was spending, as, as Sergey mentioned, on guns and that this was going to create sort of a, a real budgetary strain on Russia. I'm curious for your thoughts on that and any uh, reaction to Sergey's comments. So I think it's important to unpack with the data what the oil price cap and the embargo are doing for the Russian uh, FX revenues, right? So with the prices. If you look at the market where um, Europeans have traditionally bought, so the Baltic and Black Sea especially, oil, that market shows very significant discounts, but I worry whether these discounts are just on paper. So what we see there is the discounts of uh, $10, $20, um, and actually you know, sort of sales consistently below the $60 uh, price cap, you know, some of the lowest 45 for the first half of this year. So we have that on one hand, and this is FOB versus SIF, you know, where you can see the difference, right? So this is already FOB price, meaning that it incorporates all the transaction costs and uh, the buyer pays. If you look at the market with China, especially the Pacific ports, uh, Cosmino port, we see consistently that Russia is selling it at over $70 per barrel. This is, of course, somewhat different uh, oil. You know, this is uh, different infrastructure. You know, some of it is via pipeline. You know, some of it, you know, from Kuzmino also goes via the ships. And if you look at that market specifically, almost half of those ships specifically from Kuzmino are facilitated either by G7 ships or by the insurance from the G7 countries. So I don't need to be... a Data scientists to figure out if 90% goes over seven over over the oil price cap, at least half of it is facilitated by the by the G7 companies. That must be, you know, gambling is going on in this fine establishment. So what we see is that the oil price cap needs to be tightened. You know, we have this attestation, and as soon as I have an attestation, I'm not required to provide any supporting document. And in some countries, nobody even collects those attestations. So we have that problem. On the European side, we have a problem, and, and some companies, we've written a little bit about that, but also press has di dived more into it. 
There are some related party companies. And again, the, the private sector has adjusted. You do transfer pricing. You put on paper such high costs of transportation that then your price appears to be below the price cap. And then you capture the difference, whether the difference probably doesn't even exist, or you sort of you capture the difference while showing that you're below the price cap. So that is, uh, that is I think, a big issue. It's very hard to design an effective policy that you will, you will have a cake, meaning you'll have oil on, on the market, and eat it too, meaning that Russian budget doesn't get this money. You know, $10 change on the oil price, on the, on the sale of the oil price for Russia, for the budget, it's almost $15 billion per year. This is a huge incentive, you know, and then for the companies, it's even more, right? So, so it's a multi-billion dollar incentive per month to find ways to, you know, to move the dial on that. So that definitely worries me. In terms of the budget revenues, there are a lot of comparisons to last year. And I think if you look at the first half of the year, it's, they're almost half. They're a little bit less than sort of 50% reduction year on year. But last year, we had an extraordinary year of high commodity prices. We had almost doubling of the oil price to March. And then, of course, it came down a bit. And then you had like a almost a thousand increase on the gas prices, which also somewhat contributes to the Russian budget. So I don't think it's accurate to compare that always year on year. Also, there is the mechanics in the Russian budget where there are sort of three ways that we collect taxes on oil. Two of them are mechanical. It's euros price uh, times the extraction or euros price times the exports. And these are mechanical formulas in the budget. So therefore, if euros, a thing disappears because Russia no longer sells, uh, sells it to Europe, the price falls or, dis- or becomes somewhat irrelevant. And then mechanically, you see some adjustment in the budget. Ministry of Finance noticed that too, and then they put in the URLs with the, some sort of discount, and or rather Brent now with some sort of discount. And then, of course, the third price, which um, contribution from the companies, which nobody can calculate accurately, is the sort of extra profit that they calculate for the budget. So the fact that the revenues fell, maybe there's been some contribution from the cap and from the oil price cap, but also it's some of it is mechanics of Russian budget. So I'm coming back to the old and boring is that we just need to do more And we also sometimes get a little bit ahead of ourselves with creative policies. If the policy is too complex to begin with and goes very much against the market forces, well, maybe it's unrealistic to expect it to work. Sergey, let me go back to you. You're, as a former Russian central banker, what would keep you up at night if you were in the Russian central bank and had to worry about the Russian economy? I want b- both of your reaction to that. But what what is the thing right now looking at the, at the economy? What would be really keeping, making you nervous? Inflation. I think uh, what would mean make nervous today is a reaction of the prices on the devaluation of the ruble. According to all previous estimates of the central bank, of the independent experts, the transmission of devaluation uh, to inflation is 10%. So ruble devalued, if we compare to December, by uh, 50%. So that means I should adjust 5% of inflation. But there is a big line in statistics, once again. If we compare to December last year, it is 50% devaluation. If we compare to the February 2022, it is only 20% devaluation. And that means, it seems, maybe I have adjusted. And that, but nevertheless, nevertheless, inflation, inflation is definitely the biggest concern for me because that will cause social dissatisfaction among people. And more important, it will require, require the indexation of expenditures in the federal budget. So that means there will be expenditure pressure on the Minister of Finance to increase expenditures. 
uh, military expenditures, social expenditures, infrastructure expenditures, and Ministry of Finance will be short in money, and that is that is that will be the problem for the, for the whole wide government. And the second concern would be the uh, decision of Putin or Mishustin, uh, the Prime Minister Mishustin, to freeze prices. Uh, because many experts say that okay, um, there are huge, very high professionals in Russian Central Bank and Russian Ministry of Finance. I would not disagree with a lot, but the biggest the biggest stabilization factor in the Russian economy is its market character, its market prices, free prices. So pri uh, free prices they allow Russian economy to adjust to all constraints all changes of environment, external environment, domestic problems like employment, everything. Everything could be adjusted with prices. So if for some reasons, so Putin never tried to freeze prices in his 24 years in power. But if for some reason, but there is a pressure on him. There is a pressure on him mostly when the price starts to grow. If there is a bad harvest on buckwheat, on something, sunflower, and sunflower oil starts to, prices starts to jump, skyrocket, they will, okay, let's freeze prices. But if for some, some reasons Putin will say, okay, let's try to freeze prices, not, not only for one product, but comprehensively, that will be a problem. That will be a problem that it will not allow to keep I have no other instruments. As the central bank, I have no other instruments to keep the economy in equilibrium. I can just add to that uh, one thing that shocked me since the start of the war. When I asked my followers on social media how the war has affected their personal well-being, I have to say that people respond very uh, proactively, complaining, especially those people who are based uh, in the regions of Russia. They actually complain a lot about a serious decline in well-being. So... There's that. Maybe it is not convergent to a political, massive political dissatisfaction just that yet, but I'm always shocked by how, you know, active people are in expressing their uh, discontent. Elena, uh, what about you? Maybe you could add to what uh, Sergei said. I would take it a step further. I think what would worry me the most is that one day I wake up in Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, where this whole macroeconomic games and games with liberal economy are just all over and no longer relevant because the Russian economy got desperate enough that Ministry of Finance just needs to print money and, you know, shut up and do it. I think that there was a misconception by many in the more technocratic bloc and also by foreign investors and many of us analysts thinking that because this technocratic bloc with very liberal macroeconomic ideas, the most traditional, the most integrated into the global economy were allowed to exist. That was an indication that maybe Putin's regime was still toying with an idea of staying with the global economy and staying integrated, or maybe even changing at some point. Let's remember how Medvedev, you know, sort of Putin, you know, period went when we thought, oh, maybe they will just any day tomorrow, they might actually pivot this way, not that way. And unfortunately, now we all realize that, no, the reason we had this highly skilled technocrats in a box, you know, that were the only reason we had them is to be able to prepare for this awful geopolitical adventures, you know, or aggression on the neighboring countries. And they just served the purpose. And that's what it is. So the moment they're no longer serving the purpose, because we now can no longer deal with the shocks using the semi-old-fashioned macroeconomic tools, not old-fashioned, traditional, sorry, we're just going to go back closer to Soviet Union, starting from nationalizing companies and then just printing money. And I think then it uh, will be very hard for, you know, then I'm not sure what the people will do in the technocratic bloc. 
Yeah, unfortunately, there's no lack of willing technocratic executioners who are still assisting uh, this regime. One thing I wanted to ask, and that's uh, based on your comment, Elena, about the integration of Russia, Russia's place in the global economy, is this assistance of countries like China or India that in some ways, directly or indirectly, are helping Russia deal with sanctions. And you have mentioned that already, but I wanted for us to maybe discuss that a little bit more. Is it the case that more pressure should be applied on China or maybe India, that is a huge purchase of Russian oil now that uh, the EU is no longer purchasing uh, most of it? Maybe there's something that we can do on our side to apply this pressure and force, force these countries not to help uh, Russia. I think the administration understands the limitation of its power and therefore is not trying to pressure China or even India more. I think that definitely India, China and to the extent Turkey, UAE are playing a critical role in helping Russia. I think EU and the US can go after places like Turkey, for example, it's relatively smaller, it has very strong economic relationship with the EU, EU can informally become more transactional with Turkey and negotiate that this are the specific goods we want you to make sure to stop, then we can make you certain promises. Although in theory, let us not forget that on paper, Turkey is still supposed to align itself with European sanctions because supposedly Turkey is still on the integration track into European Union. I mean, on paper, that's where we are. Of course, in reality, that's not the case. With the UAE already, you know, the, the, the pressure opportunities are limited. The US already struggled with AML issues in the Middle East before the current conflict, uh, the current aggression of Russia on Ukraine. So now, of course, it's, it's become even more challenging. And then as you go further afield, you know, China, uh, I'm sure all of us are working in different shape or form, lessons learned and what we can do with China. You know, given the very sort of confrontational language with China and the geopolitical strategic competition between the US and China, there's very little common ground that can be found. So I think one has to understand this will be an issue. And it's unlikely we're going to draw China, at least in the near term, on our side. If anything, China in many ways is much more autocratic than Russia. It's much sort of the liberties are much more contained. Access to external information is much more contained. So what we might actually see, Russia is moving towards that kind of regime closer in the near term. Thank you, Lina. Sergey, do you have anything to add there? And also, how realistic is it that we'll see an emergence of an alternative like globe with Russia, China, maybe Central Asian countries creating some sort of economic space, you know, all collaborating with each other and circumventing sanctions. Is that a thing or is it completely unfeasible? Uh, Marie, if I may, I will come back for a second. Uh, just your previous comment on uh, uh, sanctions and uh, their impact on Russian people. I looked uh, while Elena was answering your question on the internet the last uh, poll of Levada Center on uh, impact of sanctions was in August last year. That means that they do not, professionals in Levada or any other center, they do not feel this problem as it. So there is no such a problem. Yeah, so, okay, yes, it was in the first months after invasion when inflation jumped, ruble devalued, but today it's not a problem. I promise you that next month I will I agree with Levada, they will ask questions about impact of sanctions. But I promise you, the result will be okay. We don't feel the bulk of the people more than it. Even in August uh, last year, more than fifty percent said uh, either we do not feel at all or uh, very very little on China. I think that many experts they underestimate the role of China, and the they call it assistance of China to Russia. There is no such assistance, and there is no big role of China 
in what's going on in Russia today. Because President Xi, he is concerned about good relations, good economic and political relations with the United States and European Union, first of all. That are the biggest destination markets for Chinese goods. And he understands, and his, his economic team, political team, they understand very well that losses in European or US market, they are much more costly than any benefits you may get exporting something to Russia. And they will not sacrifice their biggest markets with some marginal profits for, for China. Nevertheless, saying that, once again, I repeat, economy is about human relations. It's about micro decisions. And of course, there are some small companies in China, maybe medium China companies in China, that will try to find what Russia needs. For example, today there was a publication that Russian uh, drone producers is announcing, it's a state company, state control company, announcing a tender for Intel processors that it needs to produce drones. Officially now, okay, we need this Intel processor, this type, with a price. Okay, just eight processors. We don't know why, for, but of course, somebody in China will be able to purchase those processes. They will sell it to Indonesia, from Indonesia to Hong Kong, from Hong Kong to Singapore, from Singapore to India, from India to Turkey, from Turkey to Kazakhstan, from Kazakhstan to Kyrgyzstan. Finally, it will go to Russia. Because the margin for people who will do this scheme, they may benefit a lot in percentage, but in money, it will not be a lot. Even if we believe uh, to uh, official date is something, the price is below $25,000. So even if you earn another $25,000, it's not a huge profit. It doesn't change Chinese economy. Even if you have hundreds of such transactions. Uh, you cannot say that China is able to deliver a lot of technology to Russia. Yes, Ch China is more advantageous than Russia in more advanced in technological development. In Chinese export to Russia, 60% is machinery and equipment. But Chinese leaders, they understand very well. If we supply our equipment to a great, a great extent to Russia, Russia will produce the same goods as we. That means Russia will compete in global markets or even in the Russian markets producing the same goods as China. Do we need it? China is interested to sell cars to Russia, yes. But is China interested in investing in car production in Russia? No. Yeah. Can Russia, China, India, somebody else uh, create a block, economic block? I do not believe so. We, we see this idea of BRICS countries since 2008. It's an acronym by Jim O'Neill. It's nothing except of acronym. There is no economic background. There is no economic relations, significant economic relations. Nothing can change in mutual trade. No technological cooperation. All those countries, they are dependent on Western technologies. So China is doing its job, is going its way. China is looking for main markets. Russia is a big market for China to sell its goods. Russia is a good source of natural materials and natural resources for China. It's about business. It's about money. Sanctions, as soon as China feels that this will violate Western sanctions, the answer is no, we will not do it. So I, I'm glad we brought up Intel here because I'm specifically looking at the data. In terms of the components that ended up in the military equipment that uh, Ukrainian authorities have disassembled in, you know, the helicopters, armored vehicles, missiles, they found uh, Intel components and we identified them. So about 
600 million of that was imported last year specifically. And actually, Sergei described very good schemes, but they're oftentimes much less uh, difficult. You know, we have majorities produced in China, uh, Malaysia and Vietnam, about 80% of those specific Intel components that ends up in Russian military. And then the bulk of it, more than 60% is exported via Hong Kong. And then a bit of Turkey, China and everything else. So there is a very direct sort of relationship. So Russia is therefore is not shy in terms of announcing tenders for Intel components because majority of it maybe is not directly produced in the U.S. Actually, out of the directly produced in the U.S. components, only 6%. The 80% comes produced in China, Malaysia, Vietnam, and then gets on-shipped oftentimes via Hong Kong. So that business, quote-unquote, machinery is still working. And as far as Chinese authorities, they have plausible deniability because these are individual companies on shipping or on producing and shipping onwards. And then also we see, you know, the red lines around sanctions, evasion and avoidance or export controls is, is blurry. Right. We still have a lot of loopholes, including in the foreign direct product rule and expert controls where China can say, look, we're not actually crossing them. And I think I agree here very much with Sergei that if it's an absolute trade line, government of China will never cross it because there's absolutely no need. And we see studies of the historical retaliation by government of China. It tends to use distance, plausible deniability. Maybe it's some companies that export, we had no idea about it. Or the other way, if we block certain imports or exports, say it was Australia, it was some uh, checks on the customs or something. Or Lithuania disappeared from the customs register. So you couldn't enter product from Lithuania just because it's malfunctioned, you know. So I think China will be very careful at, at going this way and just using pragmatic business where it can get away with it. Thank you, Alina. And Alina wrote a really excellent piece on this in Barron's that we'll, we'll put in the, the show notes, as well as uh, Sergey has an excellent substack on the efficacy of sanctions. Maybe sort of one final question to kind of close us out. If we sort of look forward on Russia's ability to sustain the war effort, I want to kind of pick up on the inflation issue. Because in a n- normal situation, you know, we're dealing with inflation here in the United States and in, and in Europe, the central bank will raise interest rates to try to cool the economy down. But I guess my question is that part of what has has really propped up the Russian economy, as was sort of outlined earlier, was, you know, massive sort of state investment where we're creating essentially a wartime economy that has to run hot because goods need to be produced for for the front. The military production needs to happen. So how do you manage inflation and the, the labor shortages that are or that are, are being experienced in Russia when normally the, the answer to inflation is to raise interest rates and try to cool things down? Is it possible that the Russian central bank or the Russian economy will just really struggle with this and may not be able to actually do what they would normally do in an, a normal economic situation because they have to run the economy hot because soldiers need new tanks? Sergey, maybe to start with you and then, then to Alina. Uh, Max, it's a great question. It's a great question and, as usual, depends on numbers. We can foresee that inflation this year will be slightly above the forecast of the central bank and of the government. I think it will be above 6%. But is it a big danger for the government? I don't think so. I don't think so. If we look on the Russian history since 2012, when Putin came back to Kremlin, okay, on average inflation was about this level. So it was something between uh, 5 and 6%. Some years it was 2.5%. Some years it was 8 Last year it was 12 So 
6% yeah, it's not a problem for our central bank, it's not a problem for, for Putin, for pensioners. I would say it's even beneficial for the Minister of Finance because it boosts uh, wholesale prices and boosts taxes. Yeah, so Minister of Finance usually in Russian, in Putin's history, in Putin's time, was in favor of a high inflation. Because you plan, you plan your budget with the low numbers, but during the execution, you have higher numbers of inflation, you have more revenues. So, and you do not index your expenditures. So it's a no, no lose game, no lose game. A second very important point is that the impact of a military economy, military including production and what's going on the war with the army, impact of this military component on the Russian economy is not so great. It's not a comprehensive war. Compared to the size of Russia, compared to the size of the Russian economy, it's a very limited war. It's a war outside of Russia. The bulk of Russian people, the bulk of Russian territory, the bulk of Russian companies, they do not feel the war at all. Yes, we will say, okay, okay last year, Russian Ministry of Finance spent 5% of GDP on militaries. Yes, yes, but it was 3% as a plan, so they added another two extra procurements, extra production. Maybe this year it will be between 4.5 and 5% once again. Is it a huge impact? Like 2% of GDP is a huge number. But still, it's not, it's not 10%, like it was in the Soviet Union. It's not 40% like in the Second World War. So it's like, like in Ukraine. Yeah? So the impact of military expenditures on Russian economy is not as significant. So I anticipate some inflationary effect from growing salaries in the military sector, from labor shortages. But how strong it will be, we will see by the end of this year. We cannot predict it. What is more interesting, of course, is uh, devaluation effect. In the Russian food market, uh, 25% of goods are imported, and in the non-food market is about 50%. So here, devaluation will should play a role. How significant it will be, when it will see, will impact, I, I anticipate once again this autumn. So uh, being short, being uh, as a conclusion, I would say that if inflation is below 7% this year, it is not a problem for Minister of Finance or the Central Bank. If inflation exceeds 8% by the end of this year, that may cause some worries uh, within the central bank and Minister of Finance that will, they will try to cut expenditures. I don't think interest rate will help because increasing interest rate, you do not affect military production. Increasing interest rate, you do not affect import because finally you need to find food. Russian economy cannot produce uh, the, the same food or the same non-food products. So it's it's, it's uh, there is no substitution. Interest rate does not substitute uh, import. So they have no good game, but how strong will be inflation impact? We shall see by the end of this year. Well, I think for now, I'm not too worried about inflation in Russia. I think they will, they've been so far allowed to sound hawkish. You know, I think the concern here has to come from the fiscal side, from the budgetary spending. And the fact that in May, June, we've seen especially non-oil and gas revenues strengthen. We've also seen a reduction in overall deficit because of lower expenditure. I think that shows to me that it's unlikely then to come too heavy on the central, at the central, it will not come at the central bank doors quite yet. If there is a pickup in inflation, if there is maybe even low single, low double digit inflation in Russia, I don't think it's going to have a massive impact on the population or, or unrest, possibilities of unrest. So within the margins of error, I, th I, I don't yet see the inflation as a big, being a big issue. 
Unfortunately, also the Ministry of Finance prepared well. They, even if we assume that half of the 8% of GDP national wealth, sovereign wealth fund is not fully, um, not fully available, liquid and whatnot, they still have enough money. Banks hold less than 10% of their assets in uh, offers and government paper. They can ask them to hold much more. So unfortunately, they still have room. And the fact that they managed to streamline their deficit, maybe they get to 5% worst case scenario this year. It is still financeable without massive money printing. Do we have a realistic estimate for how much longer they can keep uh, sustaining this war? It doesn't even make sense to estimate that. And Sergey, please go ahead. Uh, Maria, the short answer to your question is forever. I do not see any time constraints for Putin to finance the war. Even if he has some financial problems, he will cut expenditures on road construction, on airport renovations, and so on and so far, but he will finance the war. The war is existential problem for him, and it will be the last item he will, ready, he will be ready to cut. Coming back to the previous problem with inflation, uh, I would add one more point. We should not forget about the political cycle. Uh, there we have, Russia has presidential elections March next year, the budget for the next year will be drafted by the government Minister of Finance somewhere in August, beginning of September. And by that time, inflation will be not going at a full strength. So I see the, more, the most significant inflationary impact in the end of the year, maybe beginning of the next year. So if the Minister of Finance will plan the budget with, I don't know, say 5% inflation for next year, and by the end, corresponding indexation of pensions and budgetary wages, but at the beginning of the next year, if inflation is 10%, two months before presidential elections, that may cause pressure on the budget, that may cause some pressure on the central bank to print more money, or to use fiscal resources. It's the same. It's the same central bank emission. Great. Well, Sergey, Alina, this has been incredibly helpful and informative and oftentimes probably a little bit more glass half empty than half full. Maybe just one to leave it on, on a slightly more optimistic note. I mean, I think part of what sanctions are trying to do to cause challenges to the Russian economy are hopefully constraining somewhat the freedom of maneuver of the Kremlin when it comes to making decisions about further mobilization, for instance, and needing to take into account the disruption that that could cause and, and, and potential broader uh, public effects. But we will be watching the economy very closely closely, and also to see what the U.S. is going to do with some of the countries that Alina mentioned that are, are serving as sort of highways into Russia to get around sanctions. But Sergey, Alina, thank you so much for, for joining us today on Russian Roulette. Thank you for having me. Thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.